All right. Well, praise the Lord. Today we are continuing in a series that I've been preaching on called Reconciling the World. And I've been talking about how we are reconcilers, how God has put us on this earth to be reconciling people to one another. And that's what I've been preaching on. And today, uh, last week, we talked about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Gospel of Luke. You remember? Somebody might remember. Cat remembers. That in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus begins his ministry, he begins to preach out of the Gospel or out of the uh, prophet Isaiah. And we talked about poverty and how poverty is one of the tools that Christians have uh, to spread the gospel and to bring reconciliation. Today, we're going to look at Jesus' ministry, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the gospel of Matthew. So we handled Luke last week. We're hitting Matthew up today. Reconciliation is not just about reparations or justice. It's a primarily about a relationship. To reconcile two people to one another assumes that something has gone wrong with their relationship. So we're going to be talking about that this morning. There's some past wrong, there's some past offense, and this needs to, there's been a break, and there needs to be healing. So would you pray with me? Open up your Bibles to Matthew 4, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Lord, would you bring us, God, to a place where we can, like Christ, bring about reconciliation. Lord, we are looking to you as our leader, as our master in this, and as you went before us and brought healing to broken people, so at the same time, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and use us to bring healing to a broken world. Lord, we want to be agents of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation, as Paul said, to this broken and, and desperately in need of you world. So would you come and fill us with your spirit and open our word, uh, open our eyes to your word this morning. Amen. Reconciliation assumes a disjointed experience. We wouldn't need to reconcile with someone unless something had gone wrong. That's sort of an odd thing to say, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? You don't have to repair a relationship that isn't broken. And so the first thing that we need to do is admit that we have a problem. And I think today it would be decent, it would be obvious to say this world has problems. How many of you would raise your hand and agree that there are problems in this world today. Okay, so, so we've already gotten past that point. All right, good. Moving on. <laughs> For those of us who are, who are married, or if you ever want to be married, you're going to have to come and deal with the fact that there are going to be problems in your marriage. There's going to be problems in that relationship. And I remember uh, when Amy and I were going to get married, and we were engaged with one another, and I said to her, I said, look, Here's the thing. I have experienced the trauma of divorce and brokenness in my home family. And I told her, I don't, I don't care how many counselors we have to see. I don't care if we have to spend all of our money. I don't care if I have a miserable life. I'm committed to reconciling any problems that come up. Um, because I've seen what happens when reconciliation doesn't occur. I'm committed to a path of reconciliation. And I wish I could say today that everybody in our community, in our world, is committed to a path of reconciliation. But that's not true. In fact, some people are looking around and not seeing a problem. Or they see that the problem lies entirely with somebody else. If I sit down with a couple, I'm counseling with a married couple, and they are laying the blame of the relationship entirely at the feet of the other person. 
You know what that is? That's denial. Every relationship, whenever there's a break in the relationship, even though there might be imbalances between it, who's to blame? There's always blame to go around. There's always a discord. It takes two to tango is what they used to say. But then nobody tangos anymore, so nobody... <laughs> Everybody's like, what? What does that even mean? In fact, the only time in history when a conflict was entirely one-sided was when we broke communion with God. Right? It's in the Garden of Eden. We're there with God. God is perfect. And yet we broke that relationship off. He had no, no blame in that. The blame rests entirely with us. That's the only place in history where a conflict was entirely one-sided. Even so, God was dissatisfied with that problem, wasn't he? And he decided that it was time to be reconciled to us. And before we even acknowledge that there was a problem, what does it say? One of the, I think one of the most theologically rich verses in Scripture, Romans 5.8, but God proves his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, before we even acknowledged him, Christ died for us. God is committed to the path of reconciliation. He's not waiting around for us to figure it out, right? Before you even knew you were his enemy, he died for you. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. It begins with a man named Jesus, and he's here and he's come from the Father to provide a path to reconciliation. And so when we go to the book of Matthew, we go to the first thing that Jesus preaches, this first message in Matthew 4, 17, and this is what it says. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's all he said. Very simple phrase. Only six words in Greek. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The path to reconciliation is paved with repentance and forgiveness. And some people want to be reconciled to God, but they don't want to repent. And I'm sorry, but that's just not how it works. No one likes to have their sin pointed out to them. I recognize that. I don't really like, does anybody like having their sin pointed out to them? I don't really enjoy that. That's not really a fun, a fun thing. We like to think that we're good people. Many of us don't steal. Many of us have not murdered anyone. We don't take advantage of others. But of course, that's not exactly what Jesus means when he says repent. Right? He doesn't mean there's a list of things that you're doing that are wrong and you need to stop doing those things. Sometimes I think we imagine that's what he's talking about. But that's not really what he's talking about. Repentance is not about doing the right things instead of the wrong things. We need to move away from the idea that sin is about breaking God's commandments. Breaking God's commandments is incidental to sin. It's incidental to sin. What does the psalmist say? I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. So that I may not sin against you. Your offense is not against some law. It's not that you've broken some command, and that's what Jesus is telling us to repent about. Our offense is against God. We've broken a relationship with him. We've decided that instead of following a path that honors God and places God as the authority in our life, we've decided to path, go down a path of our own making 
where we become the gods in our lives. So repentance is not about pleasing some divine disciplinarian and getting him off our back. It's not about following some bureaucratic requirement so that when you get to heaven, there'll be a checklist there. and Okay, we'll have you repented for this and repented for this. Repentance is about crying out against you. You alone have I sinned, O Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified in your judgment. That's Psalm 51. Only those who are willing to acknowledge their need for repentance can come before Jesus earnestly and with humility. And that's why Jesus' first sermon is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We're living in a society which is uncomfortable with sin and repentance. We're constantly looking to justify our sin, right? As soon as we sin, and sometimes even before we sin, we're looking to justify our sin. We come up with all sorts of rationalizations as to why it's okay for us to do such a thing. Friends, we go to extraordinary lengths to justify our actions before our eyes. We purchase goods at the lowest possible price that we can. And even when it's revealed to us that workers in a foreign country are underpaid so that we can pay pennies to the dollar for those things, or even when we find out that the environment is suffering because of what we're doing with our money, what we're investing in for our own benefits, that our paychecks can be stretched for longer, we justify those things because we say, well, that's not really our sin. That's the sin of the corporation. That's the sin of some CEO somewhere. That's his sin. See, my, I'm, just, just, I'm just trying to do the best I can. You know, We rationalize it. We put our hope into one politician or another. And are so adamant in our support of them that we overlook the obvious sins in their own life. When Joe Biden or Donald Trump is accused of harassment or impropriety towards women, what do we do? We look the other way. We explain it away. We rationalize it. We tear down the people who are accusing them because we don't want to look bad or inconsistent. We go to great lengths to justify our sin, even to justify the sin of other people around us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We are more concerned with our own image than we are with the truth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The path to reconciliation is lined with repentance and forgiveness. But the efficacy of forgiveness lies with repentance. I'm going to say that again. The path to reconciliation is lined with repentance and forgiveness. But the efficacy of forgiveness, the, the weightiness of forgiveness, the ability of forgiveness to give you life lies with repentance. That's where it lies. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. And I think that maybe we need to fill out what we mean by repentance. Paul writes in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, this is our theme verse, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. To repent is not just to admit guilt. It's not just to say, hey, I messed up. Forgive me. Repentance is to turn away from a path of sin. To abandon an old way of doing things. To stop making excuses for ourselves or other people. 
to acknowledge the brokenness of our own lives, the brokenness of the lives of our leaders, the brokenness of the lives of those who are uh, around us in our community, to recognize the brokenness of our community and to turn away from those things. To say, I'm not interested in participating anymore. I'm not interested in justifying sin anymore. I want to turn. I want to repent. I want to follow God. It's no good to tell somebody that you have offended, forgive me for this offense, if you have no intention of stopping or repeating your offense to them. Why should they forgive you? In fact, Paul has an incredibly difficult verse where he says, those who claim the forgiveness of Christ and then continue sinning are crucifying him all over again. Crucifying him all over again. Turn away from sin. Amy and I went to a, a marriage conference a few years ago. It was long, long time. He's a great author, but public speaking, I don't know. But he did tell this one story, which I thought was really interesting. He said that uh, somebody had asked him, you know, when there's an offense in marriage, when there's, you know, a break in that relationship, whose responsibility is it to ask for forgiveness first? Right? Acknowledging that there's going to be Forgiveness necessary on both sides. Is it, is it, isn't it the responsibility of the person who was the greatest offender to ask for forgiveness first? And Gary Chapman said, well, that's an easy one. He said, the person who should ask for forgiveness first is whichever one of you is most mature. <laughs> whichever one of you is most mature should ask for forgiveness first. Do you keep a short account with the people in your lives? Do you keep a short account with your spouse? Or with your parents or with your children? Do you keep a short account with your neighbors? Do you keep a short account with God? See, our enemy knows that we're not going to abandon God quickly. He knows that we're not going to abandon our marriages overnight. Right? He knows that we're not going to just walk away. So he starts out small. A small little lie here. A little compromise there. Just a little tiny, harmless little thing. And then it's another one, a little while later. And all of these are not great leaps and bounds, but they're just small steps. Small steps that begin to build up an account between us and the people around us. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And if anyone wants to take you from all down to none, He's not going to offer that right away. He's going to say, well, what about, what about half a percent? What about 99.5% of your heart? You can save just a half a percent of your heart for something else, can't you? And then a little while later, he'll say, now, come on now, 99%. I'm sure that's fine. And slowly, incrementally, sin begins to erode our relationships. It's the slow, erosive quality of sin that pecks away at our relationships and creates further and further distance between us and God and us and other people. Last Sunday afternoon, um, we found some racist slogans down at, uh, underneath the bridge in Otis. I uh, kind of appeared on Facebook. There was one that said white power. Uh, another one that said put a knee on another one. And another said black lives don't matter. And there was a swastika. And there was some white supremacist logos. And we found out about it. And, and we covered it up, of course. 
And people want to know, how could there be such hatred? How could there be such hatred in, in our community here? This is our community. That's our area here. That isn't Portland or that isn't the South. That's here. That's so you could get there in 10 minutes. How could there be such hatred in our own community? As reconcilers, as people who are determined to see justice and reconciliation in our community, we need to ask the question, how, how do people become like that? How are people so consumed by hatred and racism? I don't, I don't really believe that we're born with racial prejudice. I, I don't believe that. It takes time to grow into that problem. I remember when I was a kid, my favorite movie as a kid was Davy Crockett. You ever seen Davy Crockett? King of the Wild Frontier. You guys know the song. Davy. My favorite movie when I was a kid. I used to watch it all the time. And, I found, and we just recently got Disney Plus. And so I found it on Disney Plus and I said, oh man. And I couldn't quite remember everything about it. So I wanted to watch it, you know, because it might be kind of violent, uh, you know, because I wanted to watch it with my son. And so I started watching it and man, I wasn't five minutes into that. I began to realize the incredibly racist stereotypes about Native Americans in that film. Just incredible. And I was, I was shocked. This movie that I loved so much, I never thought of it like that. Yeah. At a young age, that began to shape my worldview. And I remember playing Cowboys and Indians when I was a little kid, or you know, all the little boys, they all played Cowboys and Indians. And the good guys were always the Cowboys, yeah. weren't they? And the bad guys, the ruthless ones, they were the Indians. Yeah. And it was fun to play an Indian at first, but you wanted to end up as a cowboy because you wanted to win. And the cowboys always won. And I remember how in history lessons in primary schools, Native Americans were always passive and benevolent, helping the pilgrims to survive, but ultimately naive and ultimately replaceable. Extras, if they were in a movie in the history of North America. And I remember reading books. I love reading about Native American, Native American uh, books when I was a little kid. And the books would always glorify Indian culture, but they were all written with the assumption that Indian culture was something in the past, something that had happened, but that now it was no longer a thing. And I was actually amazed. I remember as a young child being amazed when I realized that Native Americans actually existed still today. I assumed that they were all dead because of the way that it was presented. And look, I'm not saying that Davy Crockett made me racist, but each one of those experiences and countless others, which I don't remember, was a small step in a direction. And every time I saw an image and every time I heard a story and every time I read a book, it was just another small step towards a particular worldview, towards a particular understanding of Native Americans as historical, as backwards, as dispensable, as commodities. That's how racism works. That's how the enemy works. It's not in big, fantastic ways. Whoever spray painted all that graffiti, they didn't wake up that morning and say, well, I hate black people. It's small. Small little steps, harmless they even seem at times. Walking down a path till eventually you're so deep in it, you're so far in it, you don't even know how you got there. But there you are. I've been able, been privileged to officiate a few weddings. 
nobody in their wedding day includes among their vows, and I promise that I'll divorce you by the time we're 45. Nobody includes that in their vows. Yet half of our marriages end in divorce. Because we take small, small steps towards that end, towards that goal. And I'm not saying that it's any one particular person's fault. Like I said, it takes two to tango. But that's why we end up with them. Because every day, in small little ways, we're walking away from each other. So what can we do? What's the path toward reconciliation with our neighbors? Reconciliation with that person who made that graffiti? Reconciliation with our spouses? Reconciliation with our God? What is the path? What can we do? Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near, says Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus tells us a story of a young man. Remember this one? There's a young man, and he goes to his father, and he says, I don't want to live here anymore. I want my inheritance. I want all the money that's owed to me. And then he leaves, and he squanders all of his money. And eventually, he ends up in a terrible place, and he realizes he has to come back to his father. We don't know all of the steps that led to that young man's decision to leave his father. Right? It could have been years in the making. We don't know. But praise the Lord, we do know the ending. We do know what happened at the end when the man decided to repent, to turn from the path that he was on, to return to his father, and to beg for forgiveness. We know the ending of it. And I, I remember in my own life, there's a, a Blackfeet Indian man named uh, Kim LaFontaine who taught at the community college that I went to and taught a class in Native American history. And I took it because I thought, yeah, Indians, that would be cool. And he confronted my prejudice. It's sort of like he was on the shore and he called out to me, hey, look around you. Where are you right now? And I realized all of those small little steps that I had taken as a child had brought me to a place that I didn't want to be. And he gave me, God gave me an opportunity to repent, to turn away from a worldview which was more informed by Disney than it was by the word of God to turn away from prejudice and stereotypes that I held in my own heart, many of which I didn't even realize that I held until I thought about it. And then I would think, my goodness, why is it that I think that way? Why is it that I assume that about this person or this culture? And I realized I needed to repent. That man, Ken, took a chance on me and gave me what I desperately needed, a chance to repent, an opportunity to say, I'm wrong. I wanna change. I wanna turn from this worldview. I don't wanna go down this path anymore. That's what Jesus is offering us today. That's what he offers here in Matthew. Repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
This is what James says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I don't think he's talking about somebody who is sick and then now oh, they got to confess their sins so that they can be healed. I think he's talking about the sickness that is in each of us. There's something eroding us from the inside out. There's a worldview which is contrary to God. And we might identify part of that worldview as racism, but it's beyond that. There's a worldview which is contrary to God. Repent and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And again, this is what John writes. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify us from all unrighteousness. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. If we want to be reconcilers in this world, the path to reconciliation is paved with repentance. We need to repent of the slow and erosive steps that we've taken in our lives, in our relationships, with the people around us, with the people in our families, with the people in our communities, with God, the slow and erosive steps that we have taken. We need to repent of those things and turn from that path. We need to keep short accounts with God and with other people. Aware of small sins, church. Small sins put you on a path. And don't let pride keep you from having a fully reconciled and recovered life in Christ. God already sees your sin, and he loves you anyways. One pastor wrote this. He said, God has come to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. Beloved, he wants to be gracious to you. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? Isn't that a wonderful blessing? God wants to be gracious to you today. It's just like the father in that story. So desperately does he want to be with his son. He doesn't even let his son finish apologizing. He wants to be gracious to you. He's desperate to be gracious to you. So I'm going to finish our sermon today. I'm going to read a prayer, and then we're going to take communion. And this is a prayer from a book called The Heart of Racial Justice, How Soul Change Leads to Social Change. It's a great book. I recommend it. It's by a gal named uh, Brenda Salt-McNeil and a guy named Rick Richardson. Uh, Brenda Salt-McNeil, I think, is one of the greatest preachers I've ever preached. She's incredible. If you check her out on YouTube, you'll find some good sermons. Not yet, though. This is a prayer I want to pray. And as I'm praying this, would you, if you find yourself in a place where you may be knee-deep in something that you may have found yourself in, would you in your own heart let this prayer be your prayer? Let this prayer be our prayer. Because it's certainly my prayer but let's share it together. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your call to be freed from the influence and control of principalities and powers. We thank you for the ability to discern them and renounce them so that we may come into greater freedom in our lives and in the church. 
we sense your holy call to recover vital dimensions of the gospel that has been lost to us. We confess that we have been ignorant of these powers and principalities of racism. We have not discerned their corporate and institutional expressions among us. So now, Lord, we repent. And we invite your Holy Spirit to come and teach us to discern. We want our discernment to be filled with your presence. We embrace your way of humility that produces strength and weakness to defeat the very powers of hell. Thank you, Lord. We submit ourselves to your Lordship afresh. And Lord, in this time, in this place, we commit ourselves to you, our whole self to you, Lord. We find ourselves at times in the midst of a need for repentance. Give us strength, Lord, that we can repent rightly. Thank you, Lord. We're going to take communion now. If you have one of these cups, you're free to take it with us. Communion is all about the mechanism by which Christ made a path of reconciliation to God. It's, it's contained here. It's not literally contained here, but this, these are symbols, symbols of that mechanism. And so first we have a little cracker, and this symbolizes bread, which in turn symbolizes the body of Christ. That Christ's body was broken for you. That when we needed a bridge, when we needed reconciliation between us and God, Christ offered his own body, offered the cross. Would you take this and eat it and consider the Lord as you do? And so also we have a cup here with some juice in it, which symbolizes wine, which stands for the blood of Christ. Christ's blood poured out for you, poured out on the cross for you. Beloved, he wants to be gracious to you. He died before you even knew him. How much more will his mercy pour out on you now when you come back to him and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I repent. How much greater the mercy of Christ to those who pour it out for you. Take it, drink it, remember him. The amazing symbolism of communion is that we all know the scientific information that maybe in the first century they were aware of, which is that you literally are what you eat. The things that you eat break down into small nutrients. Those are used to run your body, to grow and to provide uh, all of the necessary components of who you are. So that when we take communion, one of the symbols there is that you're inviting Christ to be a part of who you are. Lord, I want to run on you. I want your body and your blood come inside of me and help me to live. Help me to live rightly. 
Let me pray a blessing over you as we go from here. Lord, we come before you in gratefulness, in gratefulness for your mercy on us. You didn't have to show us mercy, but out of your great love for us, you came and gave us mercy anyways. So for every person here, I pray that your mercy would be in our lives. Show us, Lord, reveal to us the ways in which we have compromised your your. Forgive us, Lord, because often we are more concerned with our own social positioning than we are with your truth. Forgive us, God. Sometimes we let our pride dictate our worldview. Lord, have mercy on us and re we repent of those things. And now I pray that you would come in full power and authority in the lives of these believers. Pour out your spirit on them, Lord. Fill their hearts with your presence. Because, Lord, the only thing that we have that can drive out the darkness that's in our own hearts and the darkness that's in our community is the spirit of God. You are the light of this world, so come light. Come light now into our hearts. Illuminate all darkness. Lord, illuminate even those places that we hide from ourselves. God, reveal to us where we stand with you so that we might turn and repent. Come and empower and indwell and strengthen as ministers of reconciliation. Let us be empowered by your spirit. Thank you, Jesus. We give you glory and honor and praise. Lord, we know that only true reconciliation comes about through you. So we invite you to come. Do it in our lives. Do it in our community. God, equip our hands and our feet to live it out. In the name of Jesus, amen.